Let's pray again as we continue on this journey together. Our Father, thank you for a short break there for us to meditate and think on the things that we have seen in your word and heard taught from it. Lord, as we regather now, as we seek to learn more, help our mind to be fresh, help our heart to be softened and ready for what will be revealed next. Lord, we claim no fresh revelation. We have the word of God in front of us, but you do teach us much from it as we study it. And so, Lord, show us new truths, insights that can be applied not only to our understanding of this gospel narrative, but also to life in general as we live it, the practicalities as we draw closer and closer to the time where we would celebrate together the bittersweet communion table, uh, give us greater understanding of all that was performed uh, for us because of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We began by looking at the matter of the mystery of the darkness. We want to move now to our second major point, which is the purpose of the darkness. We've asked the question, what is the darkness? Now we must ask, why the darkness? What was God the Father doing when in the form of darkness he comes to his son? That's fairly critical and crucial, isn't it, to our understanding of the whole context, the whole picture. To help us understand some more of this, I would like you to turn with me to that incredible passage, Isaiah chapter 53. Where else would we turn for some greater insight and understanding into the mind and activities of God as it relates to the death of his son? We don't have the time to read Isaiah 52, uh, which does give us a lot of context, but we're going to pick it up in Isaiah 53, and I'm going to take the time to read the chapter. It's familiar, but we're going to note some precious things perhaps we've never seen before. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement 
that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 is a very unique, prophetic, messianic portion of scripture Because in Isaiah 53, like nowhere else in the entire scriptures, do we find some of the purposes of God specifically as it relates to his son. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John narratives told, given by God, inspiration, but from a human perspective. But here in this text, we find some specifics about God the Father as it relates to the Son. Please note the following, verse number four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We know that. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That is a thought that requires some further exploration. Verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid it on him. Verse 10. This is mind blowing. Verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And please don't underestimate or undervalue that word Crush. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Verse 11. He at the end shall bear their iniquities. What is the purpose 
of the darkness? What is the purpose of the direct, active presence of God in this darkness on this day? What's the point? Well, we find something very interesting, and I'm going to just quote it for you rather than turn there. In Matthew 26 and verse 31, the Lord Jesus quotes from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7, and he says this to his disciples before it all takes place. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus quotes from Zechariah something that God says he is going to do. God the Father says, I will strike the shepherd. We look at the whole context of scripture. There is only one person who is the shepherd, the true shepherd. That is Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. And God says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. And Jesus used that as a uh, as a, an instance of proving that that night and the following ensuing situations would be the striking of the shepherd by God the Father resulting in the sheep scattering. From 12 p.m. until 3 p.m. on that dark Friday afternoon, the Lord Jesus was stricken and smitten by his father. In fact, one commentator made this comment. The cross was the time of striking. In contradiction to many commentators, the father did not, as we have said, turn away from the son as he atoned for sins, but rather looked fully upon him in a very direct way. He poured out his holy wrath upon the Son of God. In fact, someone put it like this. The one he loved so infinitely, he struck so severely. The Son exhausted God's wrath for the redeemed. Let me say that again. This is, this is really important we get this. The one he loved so infinitely, he struck so severely. The son exhausted God's wrath for the redeemed. Now, I recognize that at this moment there are probably those in this congregation here who have some questions in their mind. Is this really what's going on here? I just need to take a slight detour for just a moment and explain something that is really crucial and it is to do it's to do with the reality of God's wrath and I enter this subject with great trepidation I enter this subject with a real sense of awe here's what I have noted the modern church protests the concept of God's wrath it is not taught It is not explained. It is not exposed in the word of God. And so many, even at this moment in here, may be uh, tempted to think, "Well, but God is so loving. You're right. And there is such a focus on God's love today that even the slightest suggestion of wrath or anger on the part of God is to be a misunderstanding of his character is what many would say today. I need you to know the truth this morning. 
The plan this morning is to provide truth from the word, not what we think. We don't take our cues from the culture or from the church as a collective. We take it from the word. The Bible teaches from the beginning to the end that God has always operated with a holy anger against sin. Bear in mind the word holy anger. We're not talking about uh, an anger and a wrath that comes from man. We're not talking about the way you and I respond to situations most of the time. We're talking about a holy and a righteous wrath which is against sin and the workers of iniquity. And you say, where is that? Well, here's a couple of examples for you. Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is a real subject. And one day, the Bible tells us, the full weight And full wrath of God will be poured out on the nations that have rejected Jesus Christ. And some of us say, but God would not do that. To suggest that is to misunderstand the reality of God's justice. He is all love, but he is a just God. And he cannot and will not tolerate sin. Revelation 19 verse 15 at the end of the age, the Bible says this. From his mouth, the Lord Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That is not some uh, little comment there. This is the full wrath of God against sin. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, made it clear that all unbelievers... All, please note this, all unbelievers abide under the wrath of God in the present tense. Not in the future tense, in the present tense. And are awaiting the reality of that judgment. You say, where? John chapter 3, when Nicodemus approaches Jesus, Jesus says at the end of that chapter, whoever believes in the Son, talking of himself, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey or believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides, remains, present tense, over and on that individual. So let me say to us this morning, begging you, if I may, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, then you presently remain and are abiding under the present tense of the wrath of God and await a time when judgment will truly be done. And I beg of you, come to believe and understand Jesus Christ today. Because that is what the Bible says, the wrath of God is a reality. And you say, it can't be. It is a reality. That's who God is. Not because He hates, He loves, but He will not tolerate sin. The only means is the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. More on that later. Here's a summary statement for us. The presence of God in the darkness. You're still with me? Friday? 12 p.m., the presence of God in the darkness was not to provide comfort to the sun, but to crush the sun. The presence of God on that day was not to strengthen him in his journey, but it was to spite him. Say it can't be. Why? Why would God so inflict the full fury and wrath Upon his only son, here's why. Because he so loved the world. John 3.16. 
because it would bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 Because it was the eternal purpose, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Ephesians chapter 3, 9 and 10 Because He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 And because it's to the praise of His glorious grace. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 How could God inflict this upon His Son? Amazingly, because He had His redeemed and elect in mind. That is incredible that God would do that. Such is the love. We say, how could the wrath of God exist? That's not the question. How can the love of God exist like that? It blows my mind that God the Father would do that to God the Son for a wretched sinner like me. I understand to some degree, not fully by any means, but as the Apostle Paul says, this, this, this unspeakable gift is more than I'm able to even tell you about and I am the chief of sinners and why, oh why would God do this for me? Why? It makes no sense. The purpose of the darkness. I hope you get the picture. We must press on because of time. I want you to see thirdly, the third point. We've looked at the mystery of the darkness and the purpose of the darkness. I want you to see the departure of the darkness. We have noted that the darkness again is not the absence of God. We must get that. But the presence of the very direct presence as he pours out the cup of wrath upon his son for the sins of the world. This graphic and gruesome scene has surely now reached its climax, one would think. It must have. The wrath poured out upon the son of God. This must be the climax. It must be over now, surely. But alas, there is still a greater agony to be experienced by the son of God. One might ask, what could possibly be worse than the undiluted, unmeasured wrath of God poured out on the Son? The answer, separation from God. Someone has well written, momentary separation from God may not sound so bad to us. But then we have never known the divine fellowship Jesus knew. Again, I need to take a slight detour to explain how it is possible that this is the greatest anguish in all of history for any man ever. Because I need to tell you that the Lord Jesus did not come into existence at his birth. The Lord Jesus existed in eternity past as the Son of God. If we misunderstand and misrepresent this truth, then we have no point of understanding how it is that God the Father and the Son have this incredible, intricate connection. 
We have no understanding of it. And the Bible makes it clear to us that when the Lord Jesus came as a human born, no question about that born, and as he was, as Mary became pregnant because the Spirit of God came upon her, he was born really truly in the flesh. No question whatsoever about that. Please don't misunderstand that. But let me say to you, that is not the beginning of his existence, but the beginning of his humanity. There's a big difference. That's not the beginning of his existence. And most people who deny that reality don't like the Apostle John much. Because this is what John says, apart from many other places. Chapter 16, verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the Father and go, leaving the world and going to the Father. Very hard to misinterpret that scripture. I came from there and I'm returning there. Furthermore, John 6.62 says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Before before is a point in time. Biblical interpretation must be understood in its literal sense. John 17.5, the Lord Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before this whole cosmos, this world and this age was ever in existence, I was with you and you and I are connected and in communion. So close was this communion that the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son, that Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. John 10.30, now some say, well, I and the Father are one in will, one in, one in concept, one, one in direction. All of that may well be true, but he said, I and the Father are one. John 17 and verse 21. There is no question in my mind as I study the scriptures about the existence of the Son of God in eternity past who cloaked himself in humanity and now resides in humanity in a new resurrected body there next to seated in glory at the right hand side of God the Father. I have no question whatsoever about that. There is no possible question in my mind as I study the scriptures. But our text in Matthew 27, if you would go back there, as we draw some final conclusions which are striking and heavy. Matthew 27 and verse 45. You should know this off by heart by now. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried in the Syro-Chaldaic dialect of Hebrew. That's why it's recorded as it is here. This was his native language, very likely, the Lord Jesus. When he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why was that included here? Because that's exactly what he cried. That was the specific dialect of what the Lord Jesus said. Interestingly enough, this loud exclamation from the cross was Psalm chapter 22 and verse 1. Now, if you know anything about Psalm 22, that is a messianic psalm all the way through. We are dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ in all that happened on the earth. His passion and Psalm 22 opens with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Lord Jesus quotes that exact Psalm 22 and verse 1. Now, a couple of crucial things to note, so stay with me for a few moments here as we, as we get a couple of things to build an argument. The Greek word loud, here we have in the text, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. 
It's an interesting word. This isn't just loud in any sense. This is the word megos in the Greek. And you've probably worked out what word sounds like it in the English. Mega. Mega. This is a mega voice crying out. This was not a whisper or a groan. This was a devastating exclamation. But the crucial word that we must understand is the word forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken does not simply mean to leave someone behind. The correct rendering of this word, both in scripture and in general literature of the day, means literally to be utterly abandoned. It is to be helpless. It is to be totally deserted. Now, people would like to lessen the impact of that word, but that's what it means. Here's an interesting note for you to just lock away for future reference. Maybe if you're going to write a message yourself or do a study, have a think about this. The same word, this word forsaken, occurs in Hebrews 13 verse 5 where God makes an incredible promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here is an incredible truth for you to think about. Christ was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. What a thought is that. Christ was forsaken that the promise of God might exist. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm sorry, but there is too much evidence in the Scripture to point to the fact that if you are truly born again, you can never not be born again. Some people say you can't believe the once saved, always saved thing. Sure you can. When you understand the theology of what the Holy Spirit has done, the transaction that has occurred and all that happened on the cross, if you dare say that what He did there on this day is not effective enough for you, there's a serious problem with your theology. Now, I'm not suggesting whatsoever that those people cannot make false professions. Absolutely they can. But the reality, a true salvation that occurred by the Spirit of God when you are birthed into the kingdom of God, you may mess up along the way, but you can never, ever, ever be lost from this position because He will never leave you nor forsake you. You might try and forsake Him, but He will never forsake you. You might go for a wander with Demas down there and and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but He will never leave you. And when you come back and repent, He is right there saying, I have already rescued you. Come back. Come back. That's not returning to salvation. That's revival. That's repentance. That's getting back to where a Christian ought to be. Now it's getting dangerous because none of that was here. Christ's response, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I keep using the King James, don't I? Why have you forsaken me? Broke three hours at least of silence. Bear this in mind. Again, time. 9am, he's crucified. Probably early in that period, those other three statements from the Lord Jesus are made and then somewhere perhaps, and I don't know, but maybe 10, 30, 11, maybe even just before 12, I don't know, but for at least three, four hours we have had no dialogue from the mouth of Jesus Christ. The darkness dissipates and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a unique moment in history. This is, this is a bombshell right here. This is huge, never to be repeated. And may I say at the very start here, 
this is not fully comprehensible to us today. The father forsook his son. I do not understand. I cannot fully comprehend, nor would I try to expose fully the reality of that. I don't understand how that happens. I don't understand how that can operate. I don't know what the practical ramifications of that, but I understand that the Bible clearly teaches, my God, my God, why have you forsaken the reality that the Father forsook the Son is true. I don't know the time on that. I don't know how that looked. I don't know any of that. But this is an interesting thing to note. This is the only place in the whole of the scripture where the son does not call him father. This is the only time. No other place in the Bible do you find the Lord Jesus speaking with his father and not saying father. Here. He says, my God, my God. Now, in case we take it too far, which we all have a tendency to do, we would quickly say, well, hang on a second, that's, that's okay, that makes sense, because, you know, he doesn't have a father anymore and so on. None of that is true, that we've not lost the connection of the, the triune Godhead here at all. And in fact, we note that there is a personal possession there in the word, my God. My God, not God, God, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, there is still a connection to some degree. What that means, I do not know. But we must not jump out of the boat totally when it comes to the interpretation of the word of God because there is most certainly still a relationship and a connection there. The most awful event in history This most awful event in history does not indicate a departure of Christ's deity as some attest, but that a real chasm existed between the Father and the Son. And let me say this, let me say this. A full understanding of this concept will not be had this side of eternity, if at all. We're not going to get it. Nobody can stand behind a pulpit and give you all the answers to this because we don't know. It's a little bit like the concept of the hypostatic union, that concept where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit clearly revealed in the Scripture are one. It doesn't make sense. I say that. It doesn't make sense logically. No question. But then I believe that none of my faith is logical in that sense. It's spiritual and supernatural and it comes by faith. It comes by the Spirit of God who causes me to believe in that truth. So I'm not going to say that I understand it. Who am I to understand the mind of the Lord, God says to Job? Who are you? Who am I? I don't know. I don't know how this works. And I'm more than happy to confess that reality because I am finite. But I know that the Bible says Christ, God the Son, was forsaken by the Father. We're looking at the departure of the darkness and we don't have much to go, but there's a sub point. D.L. Moody said never, ever preach on the subject that I'm about to preach on without a tear in your eye. And I can tell you there's already been some tears. Because I don't want this to be a man on a soapbox this morning. I want this to be God's word revealed to us. And so I want you to see this sub point, something that I didn't really see. I've heard the, the cliche term, but I've never seen this really in the scriptures before. Christ experienced 
hell on the cross. Now, I've heard that said. I've heard people say, Christ took your hell and I've thought about it and I thought, I'm not sure where you get that. And, you know, it's a nice little coin phrase and it's quite, you know, uh, quite emotive. And, 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 but now I want to point out to you what I have found as I studied the word, Christ experienced hell on the cross. This is our sub point and we're almost through. There is a huge amount of conjecture today about the subject of hell. Every second person has a different position on what it stands for in the Christian realm. Many deny the existence of such a place. Others suggest that the God who is so loving would never send people to a place of torment, etc., etc., etc. Same concept as the wrath of God. Well, that can't exist. Hell can't exist, etc. I want to make this clear at the forefront. You can talk to me some more about it later if you'd like. I make no apology for believing in a literal hell which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. I do, however, let me say this at the forefront, become very concerned when preachers focus entirely on the fire and the torments and the darkness and the evil of such a place. That bothers me. Now, there's truth to that in the scripture. I'm not taken away from that. The Bible says it. But it bothers me that we focus a huge amount of that as though we are trying to penetrate men's souls with such an idea and a motive to bring them to Christ. That bothers me. Let me say this though, this is really important that we get this doctrine. The worst thing about hell is not that it rages for all eternity. It's not the memory of good things in life. Luke 16.25 It's not the chasm that exists between those in hell and those who are with the Lord. It's not even the pain and the suffering associated with that infernal place. This is it. It is the eternal separation from God. The most brutal reality of those in hell is that they are away from the presence of the Lord. You say, what? Prove it. Second Thessalonians, please turn with me. This will be the last place we turn for today. Second Thessalonians gives us some insight that perhaps you've not seen before. Again, please take the time, make a note of it, read the context around it. We want to be men and women of context in the scripture. Second Thessalonians chapter one and verse seven says this. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So that's the picture. These people don't know the gospel, don't obey it, don't know God, etc. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at all at among I marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Away from the presence of the Lord. Let me just uh, add a footnote here. Many commentators suggest that Jesus Christ descended into hell after his death. Um, I just want to be up front. I am undecided on this point as I have not given it a great deal of time to study the topic. But this I do know. This I know. The last and greatest agony Jesus experienced on the cross was literally hell. You say, where was the fire? 
There was no literal fire. Well, where was the darkness? Well, the darkness was there, but not the way the Bible talks about it. You say, where was all these? No, no, no. The removal of the Father. The separation of God. That is the greatest and most brutal aspect of hell. Away from the presence of the Lord. When God the Father forsook his Son, it was the greatest moment of anguish in the history of time. Nothing could cut deeper than the severing of ties between the Father and the Son in whatever form that took. Look at what's happened as we close. There's been the physical assault. We looked at that Thursday and Friday. There's been the physical assault of the Jews and the Romans. But that's insignificant in comparison. There's been the spiritual assault of Satan and the hordes of the demons and the devils. And though powerful, but that couldn't compare. And he's had the pouring out of God's wrath upon him. And that is a serious blow beyond comprehension for any person. But the ultimate suffering is this. God's departed presence. If we get a handle on this, you know what will happen? We will be amazed at what God has done. That's the point. That's the point of the whole thing today. The point is that we would be amazed, that we would be sent to our knees, that we would be lifted up in joy, that we would be cast down in grief at the thought of it and lifted up in joy, the bittersweet concept of what we're about to do. And in closing, the final point, the final point for the entire message for the entire day is this point. Redemption because of the darkness. Redemption because of the darkness. Everything we've done over the last couple of hours, it's all intellectualism. It's nothing more than a mental exercise if these truths do not penetrate to the soul of our being. This is just another time. This is just another point of time in the Word where we've listened to some things and we go away exactly like we came unless this penetrates to the very core of us. This is the word of isolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This word of isolation expressed by Christ is the word of redemption for us. Have you ever thought of it like that? All the suffering both physical, emotional, and especially especially spiritual, was for the redemption of God's elect. That's the point of this whole thing, is that God was doing an incredible work, even though there He was pouring out wrath on His Son and then removing His own presence. He was doing an incredible work, not for a time, but for eternity, for His redeemed people yet to be born, yet to be understood. And we are heirs of this promise if you know Jesus Christ as your saviour. You sit here in the line of this precious bloodline of Jesus Christ. We are here because of that day of darkness. We're here. Christ ushered in the new covenant by willingly drinking the cup of God's wrath, enduring the departure of God's presence and suffering the full thrust of hell for us. Please listen as we close. Let me read that again. This is the whole context of the message, the summary. Christ ushered in the new covenant 
by willingly drinking the cup of God's wrath, enduring the departure of God's presence and suffering the full thrust of hell for you and for me. Now, let's read the all-familiar passage, 1 Corinthians 11, and let's see if it takes on new perspective. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In verse 23. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Wow. I hope that you are amazed. I hope that in reverential awe and fear you say, what a saviour. What a saviour. Redemption because of the darkness. 